entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, David, I want to repeat what I was saying the other week. We believe the government when they say that there are no UFOs, or at least a lot of people do. But the government says anything else, and we don't believe a word that they say. Congress has, what, 18% approval. The president has 33%, and that's pretty good for George, you know. You know, it's better than he's had a few weeks back. So we don't believe the government, but we believe the government. Now explain that to me. I believe in Beatles. I don't believe in Jesus, just the Beatles and Radiohead. I don't believe in anything else. Well, you know, like we've said on the show many times before, you can you can believe in anything, and people do believe in anything, and that's their God-given right. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's that laughter. People can believe what they want, disbelieve what they want. I'm sorry, it's just humming a little bit of a pixie song called "Where Is My Mind." Okay, well, I thought it was appropriate. Well. Some of the conspiracies that are out there, you know, I have to wonder about. I know we've been urged over and over again on the Paracast in our message forums to have something about the moon landing, that we didn't land on the moon, the pictures are fake, and I know this is something that you wouldn't even begin to touch. We have 218 replies to that message. Moon landing is a fake. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, how can the moon landing be fake if, according to John Lear, we have yogurt factories on the moon? How does that work? I know. Making yogurt. Oh, I always want to make yogurt. On the moon. Yeah. Well, they, moon yogurt is the best kind, you know. They tell me that, you know, you mix that with grapes. Really? Sure. But, you know, meanwhile, we have the entire range. There you go. We never had a moon landing. Or is it we never landed on the moon with Apollo 11? And subsequent. No, actually, I guess if it would be one moon landing, it would be all the moon landings, right? I think the rumor is that we landed, but the pictures are fake. Would they have forgotten the cameras? Maybe, Maybe they saw something a, that they shouldn't have seen, so they had to redo the photos here. The, it, it's interesting how culture is now feeding on itself, sort of in a very strange viral way where every source is being infected. How do you verify anything from the past because everything's been touched? It's 1984 where you have people sitting there and you know just rewriting history and putting it back in the stream, and then this becomes a feedback loop. It builds on itself. And there, you get to a certain point in the timeline of this where now it is, you're how many generations away from whatever might have happened? And now there's, there's no way back. There's no schematic on back. This is part of the issue I have with the depiction of history as we know it and the study of history. If we know how we change messages and realities within a generation or two of humans, I mean, go back... 2,000 years, 3,000 years. I wondered, Gene, what is the differential between what we think actually happened versus what actually happened? This is something that worries me incredibly. Yeah. And I thought of it some point of time when I was studying history in school, Mm -hmm. many thousands of years ago, whatever. I was studying history, and I thought to myself, really, how do we know? that this is correct. How do we know that what we saw in the news last night about a specific event was correct? Because if you go from a liberal cable network, so-called like CNN, to a more conservative network such as Fox News, and then you see something on network news that might have a combination of both, how do you know what really happened? And now we look at events that we grew up with, the Kennedy assassination, 
mm-hmm. which is something that always comes up when you talk about conspiracy theories. Sure. What really happened? Well, I remember what I was doing when it happened, and a lot of people do. But the real question is this. What really happened on that day? There have been so many versions. How do you know what the truth is? Can we handle the truth? But <laughs> what is the truth? Uh, the truth is whatever got recorded and whatever somebody influenced. The truth is, well, it depends when you ask. It depends who you ask. The truth is you have to wonder about that. The idea that there is one absolute truth. Is it valid? And this is where we get into strange topics like, for example, quantum mechanics, where you know, at, the, at its core, you've got light as, is it a particle? Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Is it a wave? Well, it depends now upon the state of the observation and the observer, which, of course, given that this is the paracast, would pretty much lead me down the road of, well, okay, that's kind of interesting. If human observation, if interaction with our senses now has this external effect on the nature of matter itself, then what does that say about humans' abilities to project a form of energy that can have a direct application, a physical application in the world? And, and you know, that leads us down the path of ESP and uh, telekinesis and all sorts of really interesting stuff that clearly at this point, Gene, we don't have real answers about this at this time. We just don't. But yet, as we go back and we look through reports and we look through the history of the paranormal, some amount of this, like anything else, is like talking about UFOs or spirits, some large amount of it is noise. But then as you chop away the noise, some core presents truth and actual, maybe not, I don't even want to call it truth, but the actual record of what actually is or what actually happened. You know, as we talk about these topics, Look at the fact that here we are trying to, maybe with certain levels of success, I don't know if ultimately we can, we can really be successful at this, but trying to perhaps just even a little bit shift the stream of the discussion, perhaps shift some of the emphasis, open up some new possibilities, which is so hard to do. And we talk about you know the 60 years of UFO activity that has been recorded in modern times, and what do we know about it at this point? Well, I suspect that anybody looking at this would learn a lot more about human psychology than they would anything about what UFOs really are. Well, the whole UFO field is a mixture, to my mind, of psychological issues and maybe some real phenomenon that certainly generates a lot of things. But once you interact with a phenomenon, many people are changed in ways that are very severe. And they undergo a life-changing experience. And obviously that affects them psychologically. But what effect we're going to discuss today on the Paracast is conspiracy theories. Mm. We have our favorite conspiracy theory expert, pardon the tongue twister, none other than Ken Thomas. And we're going to talk about real conspiracies and mythological conspiracies and maybe a few things in between. Hmm. Mm. Coming up next on the Paracast. Not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering 
Six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for nineteen ninety-five, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for nineteen ninety-nine. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, leave me a message, I will call you back, or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's, I listen to the Paracast, here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. The other day I was listening on one of those old-time radio shows to the song from Johnny Rivers, Secret Agent Man. And you're telling me, Ken, that you wrote kind of a strange history of a connection between the original Secret Agent TV series, the sequel, The Prisoner, and all this stuff. Yeah, how it all connects up to the history of the CIA and the public image of the CIA. Here's the broad stroke thing. You know, when Secret when it was Secret Agent, actually it was originally Danger Man. Right. That was the original name of the show. And through actually two, there were two series called Danger Man. And both of those, the Secret Agent was the Superman, right? I mean, he was defending the West and he always won. And he was the good guy. But by the time the prisoner comes around, this followed the resignations of Victor Marchetti and Philip Agee and all these famous CIA agents who, who just totally defected and exposed the CIA as having subverted via assassination and all these other manipulations of, of foreign governments. The image of the CIA had totally changed, particularly after everybody got the idea that the CIA had killed Kennedy. So by the time you get to the prisoner, right, he never gets it right. He can't escape that island. He's totally 
wrong. He's not a super guy. He's a super schweb. He's a slave. And so that's the broad stroke picture. There's a lot more to this. It's all in the latest issue of uh, Steam Shovel Press. I'm a big fan of the show. I'm a big fan of Patrick McGowan, who's actually also in Ice Station Zebra, Howard Hughes' favorite movie. He was also uh, in a movie they made of this comic book character called The Phantom, and he plays the ghost of the Phantom's father. The Phantom. Right. The Phantom is a famous comic strip by Lee Falk, actually. That's right, the Lee Falk comic, and they had a movie featuring, I forget the actor's name, playing... Alec Baldwin, was it? No, no, it wasn't Alec Baldwin. It was the gentleman who played the boyfriend in Titanic. There. Okay. The boyfriend in Titanic? Right. Not Leonardo DiCaprio, but the other the other You mean Billy Zane. Billy Zane. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. So Billy Zane played the right. Phantom in nineteen ninety six. Okay? Not gonna get a prize for that. Sorry. No, no. And but you know the Age best, the internet, the best part special. of the film was one of the early appearances of Catherine Zeta Jones. Oh, really? Mm. Oh sweet. Tasty little dish that one. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of my uh, writing work lately, The Prisoner is actually uh, part of a series that I've been doing called The Parapolitics of Popular Culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of what I've been looking at is different manifestations of that other world, you know, the parapolitical world, the paranormal world. The last thing I discovered, I was watching a movie called Bride of the Gorilla from 1951, and uh, in it, they start discussing this thing they call the Sucharis, which is, when I go on with the discussions, it's a chupacabras, you know, and the chupacabras, according, you know, look it up on Wikipedia anyway, the chupacabras is supposedly a phenomenon of the late 80s. They first started seeing chupacabras like in 1987. Well, here it is. You know the chupacabras, right? The goat goat sucker. The goat sucker. Well, they're actually sacrificing a goat to a chupacabras in this movie from 1951. I sent this off to Lauren Coleman at uh, Cryptomundo, and he says, wow, man, that, he, he apparently picked up some reference to the chupacabras in an episode of Bonanza from 1960, but oh, mine man. even beat that, beat that one out. So it's been a legend, of, you know, for like a half a century at least that, that kind of pops up through the popular culture, you know? It's just like uh, like the Roswell thing. They all say that, you know, they got all excited about Roswell when Stan Friedman wrote the book in the 80s. But you find you can find Wilhelm Reich's book from 1955 where he's driving into Roswell, and he's like saying, man, there are aliens at work signs along the highway here. Yeah. So well, just the whole idea that the modern UFO era started in 19 what 47 really ignores the whole battle over LA that was like 1942. I mean well, it, actually, just, it ignores the Bible. <laughs> it, well, it ignores that's all the references to UFOs and world culture going back forever. Well, going back and yeah and and the elves and the spirits. I mean, well, you know, basically what we find is that there are these uh, cyclical patterns that we find to culture and certainly to to manifestations of paranormal stuff that make you wonder about the relationship between humans and our senses and these phenomena. You know, what are we really talking about ultimately? And that's something that, you know, it's it's the hard question about talking about paranormal things. How are these things connected? And well, what are you know, we really talking about? Yeah, I've been kind of focusing on the relationship of the paranormal to the parapolitical, you know. Like my, my last book before the current one was called Parapolitics, and I've been kind of trying to popularize that term and try to, to demonstrate to people that, that they're very similar phenomena. I mean, the paranormal things happen, that prefix para means alongside, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, paranoia is not the absence of sanity. It's a 
a kind of an awareness that, that exists alongside normal reality, that paranormal events exist alongside normal reality. Parapolitics, that is conspiracy theories, are things that happen alongside, you know, regular, ordinary, everyday politics. Is it that they happen alongside, or do we have, again, this version of politics that is the face to the public? Then we have a version of politics that is essentially completely hidden. And these two things are certainly related and connected, but in many ways they seem to operate independently of one another. I mean, you have the real reality or, versus the perceived reality. Uh, well, you have multiple realities, actually. There is no one reality. Well, yeah, we're back um, to reality tunnels, sure, sure. <laughs> reality tunnels, right, exactly. Well, you know, that's reality tunnels, a term that was coined by my good buddy Tim Leary, who was my mentor into the world of the weird. Wait, is that and, Leary uh, or, or Robert Anton Wilson? I mean, who's the real, where's the real attribution go? Oh, well, check it out. Look it up in Wilson's, and I'm glad you brought up Wilson's name, but it's Leary, you know. Wilson will attribute it to him. I, I like to cite chapter and verse. God, I wish I had memorized everything Wilson ever wrote. But no, it's a reality tunnel originally comes from Leary. But this new issue of Steam Shovel Press, I mean, the main thing about it is it's a tribute to Robert Anton Wilson. Good. Um, you know, I, I went up to Santa Cruz and helped send his ashes off into uh, off into the sea. So there's photos from that and a uh, big write-up on Wilson. Wilson's like on the cover. This issue of uh, Steam Shovel Press, the one that is the big tribute and cover is Robert Anton Wilson is number 23. Oh, That's man. So, so funny. That's great. <laughs> oh. See, so he died when he did so that you could do that. Wasn't that nice he, of him? Yeah, yeah, he did. We coordinated that, you know. That's well, certainly well, had great control. That's another conspiracy theory. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I wanted to get into before we get it deep into the latest conspiracy scuttlebutt is the fact that some of the so-called conspiracies do not, in fact, survive the test of logic. And they not only aren't logical, but they aren't conspiracies are just most serious. of reality doesn't survive the test of logic are you kidding? <laughs> that's true i mean let's, yeah. let's look at the current political situation in the united states that's logic that's no that's not really yeah. here no, well everybody not. uh shaves with a different ocam's razor right <laughs> oh but it will nice <laughs> make sure the blade is very sharp yeah there are certain things that i've had to argue blue streaks with people uh, not basically based so much on logic, because, you know, everybody, like I said, everybody's logic is different, and everybody's Ocom's razor cuts cuts a piece of reality meat in a different, different way. Brain. Yeah. But there are things that, uh, you know, like uh, there was no plane that crashed into the Pentagon. That is not true. There's a double negative for you. A plane did crash into the Pentagon. It's as far as I can tell, and I've done research, I've gone to D.C., and I talked to everybody uh, who works in this hotel that's right across from the Pentagon, to a person. They describe a plane crashing into the Pentagon. They talk about the American Airlines logo, so on and so forth. You know, and that's not just me. You can go to D.C. and talk to any 20 people, and that whole idea was just the concoction of some French guy. But that doesn't mean there was no conspiracy in, in, in 9-11. And in fact, all those same hotel workers said to me and, and to John Judge and Len Bragg who with me that the FBI came around and confiscated all the surveillance footage of that. There's plenty of it, and they're sitting on it. The only images we have of the Pentagon crash are those series of uh, uh, still images that were taken at the Cisco station across. Yeah, really low yeah, those clearly, yeah, those clearly demonstrate that there was a plane. But, you know, so... So what is that? You know, there's a cover-up going on. Uh, it's clear it was a plane, but there's a cover-up going on. And okay. it's the same thing. I noticed this, too, the other day with the ghost plane uh, footage. 
the uh, that I forget the guy's name. It's probably going to be as, as well known as the Brewers, though, at some point. But uh, these people called him up and asked where, tried just to ask where he was standing when he took it. And he said, "Oh, you got to call CNN." I didn't agree with them. I can't talk to you. Talk to CNN, you know. And it's this clampdown on the available footage that, of course, fuels a lot of crazy theories. Ken, tell us about this ghost plane footage because I don't know about this. What are we talking about here? It's called ghost plane footage. Get up on YouTube. Just type in ghost plane. It's right. it's uh, the second tower, uh, the second plane crashing into the second tower. It's the piece of the footage that shows that crash as clearly as anything can. And it is kind of spooky. I mean, the plane's wings are, you know, extended, and as it crashes, they don't bend back. They don't do anything. It's almost as if the plane dissolves into the building. All right, now, that's why, it's called, the, that's why it's called the ghost plane. Talk about the, the hit on the south tower. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, what number? What, which flight was that? I, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not at the moment. It's not coming to my head. But we're talking about the second impact. That's right. Yeah. All right. There is some footage uh, from the ground of that, and it's real clear footage. But at the same time, it's the footage that they used. Uh, one group of people used to suggest that there was some kind of pod that was underneath the plane that got yeah. shot forward and, and blew up the building before the plane crashed into it. Okay. The, the reason I'm asking this is that there is the 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 most important footage I think of the second impact was shot from 12 John Street, the penthouse apartment on, on 12 John Street by my friend Scott Myers. It was on a locked-off camera, tripod-mounted locked-off camera, that he shot of, that he captured of the second impact. It's the uh, footage that was used to determine how long the building, the, the, the South Tower, swayed after the impact because of the fact that it was locked off in I believe I'm correct in stating that it was the footage that was shot closer to the actual episode than any other footage. That footage, there's a whole story that I won't even bother telling right now in the Paracast about how I helped Scott get that footage into the hands of the FBI the evening of September 11th. But uh, that footage is, is about as clear as it gets. And, you know, I, I mean, if somebody's going to say that, you know, that plane did not enter that building the way it did, I mean, you can see the, the chunks of the plane flying out of the other side of the tower. That's very yeah. clear. Um, the explosion yeah. makes it real obvious. I mean, from in terms yeah, well, of you know, visual analysis, it's not a question in my mind. My, the questions that come to my mind, is, is that your friend's film? Does he own it? Did no, he this, give it that, to the FBI? Can he take it? And hold on, hold on. That footage was you're, you're talking about footage shot from below. This footage, you know, from like directly below. Um, this, right. I don't think no. we're talking about the same piece of footage. No, no, we're not talking about the same piece of footage. But I'm asking the same set of questions because the guy who took it from the ground, he will not discuss it. He's under some kind of agreement with CNN to never discuss this. Oh, really? And well, so I'm wondering about your friend. No such restrictions. In fact, we both interacted with the FBI that day, and um, you know, there was no sense. I'm just telling you, our 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 experience with the FBI on that particular footage was that there was no sense of them attempting to get us to cover it up. Scott uh, supplied them, I believe it was with a duplicate tape. It was a mini DV tape. I think he had they still held on. Duplicate? I think, yeah, they I think settled? what he gave them was a dupe tape, if I'm not wrong. Um, because what happened was Scott, yeah. hold on, I mean, Scott had taken that tape and immediately digitized that footage into QuickTime at, at full resolution. So at that point, you know, um, the, the QuickTime movie, which actually went up on the web that week, 
we had it posted yeah. so people look at it. There has never been, to my knowledge, any attempt from on the part of the FBI to squelch Scott in any way or to you know limit his ability to share that footage with anybody. To my knowledge, that didn't happen at all. So I'm yeah, just saying well, uh, I can't say that for everybody, but certainly for my friend Scott, that would be that would be accurate. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about these people in the hotel at the, the across from the Pentagon. It seems to me that that would be the bureaucratic instincts of the FBI to confiscate everything just in case there was something incriminating in it. So that is an interesting experience about your friend, though. But they just totally they they settled for a copy of the, of the tape and yeah, they sure. yeah. and they didn't tell him uh, you know don't talk about this with anybody. Or, you know, I, I dealt with the FBI extensively on September 12th about this video, and at no mm -hmm. point did they ever try to say to me, you can't talk about this, you're sworn to any level of secrecy. Not at all. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we are talking to our favorite conspiracy theory aficionado, none other than Kenneth Thomas. And we're talking about conspiracies real, imagined, and otherwise. And I guess when you deal with 9-11, there were so many things there, like Seven World Trade Center. Yeah. <laughs> Why did that come down? That's just so bizarre that, it, to me, in many ways, that is the smoking gun. But here we go on the politics roller coaster. <laughs> well, you know, I, I make the yeah. point about 9-11 that there is no non-conspiracy answer to whatever happened on 9-11. It's not like really? uh, you're arguing for a lone gunman, like in the case of Oswald. Right. There's right. a conspiracy there where you might think that the, you know Bush did it or whatever, or you think that Al-Qaeda did it, but it was a conspiracy. Oh, in terms know? of the definition of conspiracy, absolutely. The problem, of course, with the term conspiracy, it has this connotation, kind of like the word liberal, where it's been, <laughs> been co-opted. It's just been co-opted and it's been perverted. Of course, most people use the language without, without knowing yeah. the actual well, of words. Yeah. And that's my whole problem with the with the truthers. That's what they're being called now, right? The 9-11 truth yeah. movement. Yeah. They're called the truthers. T-R-O-R-O-F-E-R-S. My big problem with them is that you know every conspiracy is George Bush's conspiracy. That they just simply don't exist anywhere else. That everybody else, because Al-Qaeda did actually accomplish this conspiracy to destroy those buildings. You know, it was because of a bigger conspiracy that uh, was, was always being manipulated by the same 
kind of handful of daddy celebrities that you see all the time in D.C. and on CNN. To me, that's just a little a little provincial. I'm not saying there isn't any collusion, but there are very specific points in in history and detail that could lead to unraveling what those things are that have nothing to do with the whacked out there was no plane that hit the Pentagon or right. demolition right. charges brought down the buildings all that, that kind of thing you know well but, no it's uh, an attempt to polarize discussion so you can't actually really look at the real stuff like you know what happened with all of the material from the buildings which well, it was immediately carted away as quickly as possible I mean one has to wonder about that and, and it makes me sick how Rudy Giuliani has used that data further his political agenda and aspirations and how ultimately I think when historians a hundred years from now look back on this the certainly the view they will have about this whole situation in hindsight and with certain revelations will be very different than what we have now and part of the problem is people assume that that means that they'll have something closer to the truth what actually <laughs> happened that day and I think no actually they'll have something even further away because It'll have been processed through a hundred years of the phone game. Yeah, yeah. There's all that, and also that idea, actually, that you just put out there, that if they didn't cause 9/11 to happen, then they took advantage of it. You know, that they used uh, its implications to expand their own power. That's actually the thesis of Len Bracken's book, which is uh, the Shadow Government, which is like one of the first that came out yeah. and has this yeah. timeline that's closer to when it actually happened. And it's really something that you can go back to, to you know. As a kind of solid piece of just data, you know. This is what I say when I when I just talk about the um, the Kennedy assassination, for instance. I try to tell people to just flush out of their minds all of their various theories, and go back to what you can see and what you know. And you know, sure. that's a, there's a Bruder film, you know. And you know, you can see that the shot is coming from the grassy knoll. It doesn't take a theory to get you right back to that original point. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. And, and that's, you know, that's why when I argue 9-11 stuff, I try to base it on stuff that I actually did. Go out and talk to those people, you know, instead of somebody's third-hand theory about what may or may not have happened with demolition charges and that kind of thing. Well, absolutely. I mean, the problem, of course, is that people don't want to think they want to believe, and belief usually involves you have someone else, an external source, coming up with the theory and then you just prescribe to it and that's yeah. so much easier than actually thinking because thinking yeah, well, you know, that. we'll take for instance the case of Danny Pearl uh, you know if, if, if you recall this thing the, the head of the ISI the Pakistani uh, Secret Service had to resign because it was exposed that he had made a payoff to Muhammad Atta yeah. Danny yeah. Pearl was investigating where that payoff came from and mm -hmm. that payoff probably leads back to Western sources, back to the, quote, CIA, you know. But because he was getting too close to it, you know, he gets killed and beheaded. That's arcane detail to all these 9-11 troopers. They don't even remember who Danny Pearl was, mm -hmm. you know. If you, you know, start focusing some attention on that, you might be able to get a little bit closer to uh, actual names of actual people, you know, instead of just, God damn it, it was a lion people in the Bush administration. Was, I'm not trying to exonerate the Bush administration. What I actually think happened is uh, I'm very taken with uh, Norman Panetta's uh, testimony that to the 9-11 Commission that Cheney issued a stand-down order, that this stuff started to happen, and those guys all felt, hey... <laughs> Hey, we can work with this, you know. <laughs> we can look well, it, 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 it fit the PNAC agenda, and the fact that uh, you know Bush sat there in that classroom for as long as he did is absolutely. See, there's only one way to interpret it, really. And again, yeah, I think we're on the same page, Ken. You, you pull away all the crap and all the the noise, and and in there there is a core truth that's just undeniable. But 
I think we're in a position where, at this point, certainly with most of the American population, there is such an undercurrent of stress and negativity, and I think a lot of it has to do with the actual reality of what we're doing around the world, and like the reality of what's going on on the ground in Iraq versus the media's, you know, repackaging and and watering down of the thing to be palatable in terms of the format of the major media and how they present everything pre-digested. I think underneath of all that, there is a a sense that people, I think, really know, and maybe even at a subconscious level, they know that what's going on is is really terrible and it's bad. And it's, it's certainly not noble. It's certainly, I don't think, justifiable. And it's really created, I think, in our society something more than a malaise. It's, it's, it really does seem to be almost like a sickness that I think affects us. And, and the reason I'm saying this is that listeners to the show know that I just spent two weeks in Buenos Aires, Argentina, a place where people don't walk around with this constant sort of overhanging fear and dread and the subconscious knowledge they're involved in really terrible things. And with all of the economic pressures down there and, and that reality, people in general just seem happier, better adjusted than the typical American does at this point. Well, don't you think also that that creates the climate for us to lose our freedoms? Because oh, yeah. consider what's happening here. You have people who are unhappy and those who learn how to exploit that unhappiness are then capable of, shall we say, causing problems. Listen, that's the human game, baby. That's the human condition. Here we are. <laughs> and, and it makes any kind of rational discussion about anything. I mean, here we've got a radio show about paranormal topics, and see how I got that in there? I want to kind of move us back in that direction. It makes the discussion of anything paranormal, you know, if you, if you don't fit A or B, People talk about wanting to think outside of the box. Well, everybody lives inside of the box, so thinking outside of the box is all great. But until you start living outside of the box, it's all an exercise. And here I'm going to say it again on this show in recent memory. It's all mental masturbation, <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I can agree with a lot of, of, of what you guys just said. But, I, you know, I, what, I, what I can't agree with is that there is not something like that going on in the Middle East, you know, suicide bombers, mad mullahs uh, drifting toward a nuclear bomb, you know, all of those things that uh, a lot of people would just readily dismiss as neocon propaganda isn't. Oh, no. You know, oh, yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely. Osama bin Laden is a real guy. And those terrorists have been bombing places around the world in their attempt to reestablish a, a medieval caliphate. That's, that's all real, you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They're kind of mixing in with the, the same old kind of imperialistic ambitions of the United States uh, has always had. And, you know, so what we have are, you know, bad guys fighting bad guys and kind of the rest of the world just looking for some other thing to do with the world, you know, wanting something else other than constant evil. Well, we we have to retool the, the priorities of the society. I mean, you know, whatever. Well, what you know, we, but I think your point about the paranormal and my point about the parapolitics that there is so much more to reality than just this constant warfare. That's the thing that people. That's why, in fact, I've been trying to push steam shovel press into the direction of again connecting. Like the late the the, the first article in the new issue is about Charles Fort and Fortiana, and mm -hmm. uh, you know Fort, right? He spent Absolutely. his life cataloging all this, you know, this strange Procession stuff. of the damned. Yeah, <laughs> You're talking to a reader of the Fortean Times for many years. Right. Yes, absolutely. The name the name of the article is Dogma Be Damned, and it's by Skyler <laughs> Alphagren, who's this fantastic writer. And it basically is like a, an overview of what that is and what that means, you know, that there is, you know, we got a lot of work left to do 
just exploring the world around us, you know, the weird paranormal events and this kind of thing that the energy and the resources that are wasted on the global warfare culture is just sick. Well, I think there's always the argument, too, does what is happening serve the interests of any particular force that's involved in some of those paranormal encounters and or events? Because you can look at them two ways. You can look at UFO abductions, for example, as being from creatures involved from another planet, from another dimension, from our future, or... Or some kind of military psyop. (laughs) Right, right. Or just a military experiment on a much lower lower technological level. Yeah, well, remember uh, the expeditions to uh, Tibet by Edmund Hillary and Tom Slick and those guys were all covers for a CIA operation to smuggle the Dalai Lama out of Tibet. Lauren Coleman wrote a, wrote a book on that, Up in Search of the Yeti. And, uh, well, and actually, the, um, one of the more interesting topics in the ufological subculture is Paul Benowitz and all that, and, and Bill Cooper and all that stuff that was happening in the American Southwest in the 80s. A guy named Greg Bishop. Did you have Greg, Greg Bishop on your show? Um, you know what? Called Project Beta. I was just reading Greg's website today. He, he's, a, he's a great writer, and actually, we, we try to get him on the show, but Gene has a problem with people whose first name is Greg, apparently. <laughs> so, so Gene has actually been an obstacle in trying to get Mr. Bishop on the show. I actually tried to get Greg to legally change his name to a Chauncey Bishop, but he wouldn't do it for the purposes of coming on the podcast. Actually, I said if he changed it to Moisha, I'll take it. Moisha, hey, listen, Moisha Bishop, that doesn't go together. That's like salami and uh, and eggs. Actually, wait a minute, that goes together pretty well. It's like salami and chocolate, you crazy boy. So, anyway, he wrote the book, uh, maybe even the the first book, that to try to take a closer look at how the Air Force actually drove Paul Benowitz insane, Mm -hmm. but not before Benowitz could circulate all this business about aliens working side by side of the secret bases in Dolce, New Mexico, and and, and all this stuff has captivated everybody's uh, attention, anybody who was into UFOs in the 80s, you know, whose ultimate expression, of course, was, was Bill Cooper, you know, Bill Cooper, who supposedly saw the majesty documents that really mapped out all of these connections uh, that the these trees that the United States had signed with alien cultures and or at least that's what Cooper originally believed, and then he changed his tune and said that that was that he was a dupe of, of propaganda for the coming new world order. And then eventually he was shot and killed for tax resistance. I mean, Cooper is like the classic uh, personality of that that moment in in time in American history. I'm hoping somebody does a biography of him soon. But that's what you have here, right? I mean, you do you you have people genuinely interested in UFOs like they have been since you know since there's been a popular culture, and it's all been in Invested with the covert intelligence world. They've had people in there manipulating that because they know that the UFO places, wacky as some of them might be, it is a place where just the average citizen gets together and starts talking about advanced technology, advanced weaponry, man's place on Earth, you know, and all this other stuff. So they send their people in there, and it's been, you know, I mean, my one book, Maury Island UFO, remember, I think we, we did an interview about this, Fred Crisman 
who was one of the uh, witnesses of the 1947 uh, UFO incident and was subpoenaed in 1968 by Jim Garrison as part of the JFK assassination. He was like a personality on the UFO circuit all that time. And uh, Jim Garrison thought he was the guy who shot Kennedy. I mean, that's a very important part of, of, of American culture. And part of the UFO lore, because we look at Fred Crispin in connection with the Maury Island case. We have all the conspiracies that surround it, such as the fact that it's alleged slag or some artifact that may have come from a UFO is taken by these two military officers and they crash in a plane. It's... I tell you, the pity of that whole story is that there's only one book that, that has all the details, of course, and I wrote it. And it's, uh, the, you know, and then it's filled with Freedom of Information Act searches and a lot of really legitimate research. But it has been out of print for a long time. I just did an Amazon search tonight. You can't get a copy of that book for less than 100 bucks anymore. That's a shame. It needs to be reprinted. <laughs> so why not, I mean, can you do the PDF version? I mean, at this point, do you want to get it out there to promote other stuff? I mean, this is a well, that's a, theme, I mean, right? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this whole reboot of Steam Shovel Press has been in PDF form. The new issue of, Ste of Steam Shovel, I'll, I'll do printouts for people who absolutely have to have it printed out, but I'm mm -hmm. mostly circulating it as PDF. And, in fact, I'm also making available my new book, and this is a long head story. It's called The Conspiracy Files, and it is out all over Australia. And one of these days, they assure me there's going to be an edition in the U.S. and the U.K. But before that, I'm selling that PDF and parapolitics PDF. The unfortunate thing about Maury Island is that I don't have it PDF yet. I still I have the electronic file, and I hope to, in the long run, create a PDF copy. But well, uh, well, that's going to be a while. Why? I'm a busy man. I just, you know, I just rattled off three, <laughs> three projects that I just put out there. <laughs> just put out a new issue. Oh, no, also, I mean... Uh, I'm also making available the last talk I did in San Jose for a conspiracy conference I've got on DVD, so that one's coming out. I have plans to release uh, video versions of the first episode of The Invaders with my commentary. I, I, once, I one time sat down with Roy Finnis, who was like the star of the show, and we went over about how The Invaders is actually literally connected to the UFO subculture. Uh, like the granddaughter of uh, George Adamski worked on the show, and that's why there's an Adamski craft that lands at the beginning of it. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Begetney, and we've got our old friend Ken Thomas, our conspiracy theory expert. Okay, Roy Finnis 
He has showed up occasionally at UFO conventions. So yes, I met was, him in Roswell, actually. Right. Yeah. Is he and interested in the subject, or is it just something to get a few extra bucks because his career has gone nowhere? He's more interested in it now, I think, than he was before he met me, you know, because guess who said that that, that series was about his life? Fred Crisman. <laughs> So I pointed this out to Roy and gave him a copy of Moy Island, and uh, uh, we started talking. We started talking conspiracy, and uh, we sat down and we watched a lot of episodes. A very hard show to find, by the way. It was, it's not been on DVD. You can you can get a few episodes on VHS, and it's very hard to come by, like the first episode. Mm. But but it's all part of this thing. I'm trying to do value-added stuff. I mean, uh, trying to put actual historical information about ufological history in a commentary track on that, and all. So at the same time, there's another movie called She that uh, came out in 1935 that stars my great aunt Helen Gehagen, who ran against Nixon uh, for the Senate seat of California in 1950. Uh, there's a whole bunch to say. I mean, she was the one who came up with the nickname for him, Tricky Dick, you know, and, I was, and he, she was... Tricky Dick was hers? Yeah, she came up with Tricky Dick, yeah. She was read down to her underwear, according to him. Uh, but anyway, this is my great aunt. And this is another classic popular culture thing. A move, this movie, She, was made by Marion C. Cooper, who uh, who also made King Kong. And it's basically the same kind of story where these explorers kind of go out to this island, exotic island somewhere, but instead of finding this you know huge gorilla, they find this 3,000-year-old bitch from hell. And, and that's my Aunt Helen, Helen Gagan, who later <laughs> ran against Nixon. There's a whole reboot of Steam Show. Steam Show's been kind of quiescent for the last couple of years, but now that I'm beginning to master more of <laughs> the cyber environment, I'm, I'm coming up with a, you know, a lot of these different projects, which, of course, include eventually putting the Maury Island book out as PDF. But, you know, in its time, I'm only one guy. <laughs> yeah, but like when, uh, the reason I asked before the, the why question, Ken, was because when you have something in electronic format, you know, Microsoft Word or whatever you might have generated, and creating a PDF of that is really not complicated. That That's the reason I asked why. I mean, oh, yeah, it's know. nothing. It's a press of the button. It's a press yeah. of the button. But actually, there's one thing I don't understand that I would think would be out there, but I I haven't, I haven't encountered it, and that is, can you make a PDF that nobody can copy? Well, that that's kind of an interesting question, and the answer to that is, if somebody wants to copy it badly enough, they will. You could make so, a PDF that's password protected, but once again, if someone wants to break in, they'll break in. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. The uh, just just the other week, I got a notice from. One of the distributors of Steam Shovel Press, one of the magazine distributors, Bernard DeBoer, has been distributing the magazine for like 10 years. Just went bankrupt, you know, and, oh. and that's been the long series of, of problems with Steam Shovel because mm -hmm. it kind of came along at the same time the computer started getting big. Is that, uh, you know, the hard, hard copy anything is just going down the tubes. Nobody's reading newspapers. You know, the distributors are all going belly up. Yeah. And the only thing really to do is to try to do it as, as PDF. So yeah, the web has pretty much won the publishing game. Yeah, I think we're there. Yeah, so I'm just at the beginning. In fact, I had to do a mailing. My The post office was threatening to uh, cancel my bulk rate permit because I hadn't used it in such a long time. Oh, yeah. So that was what lit the fire under me to finally finish this issue of Steam Shovel Press that I've been working on for such a long time. And I did a mailing to all the subscribers saying, send me your email addresses, you know, uh, and I will send it to you PDF. And that will save me so much postage. And we'll just be closer and closer to getting more and more issues out if we can try to do it this way. And do I wonders for the printing expense, too. 
your, your printer's not going to like it, but certainly your wallet and your checking account will certainly love yeah. it. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, and the uh, Brazilian rainforest will love it, you know, because one less tree has to go to the blade. I was going to say the trees will thank you for this. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, so I'm, like, really excited about the, this, this doing it this way, you know. It's, I've been kind of stuck in it because it didn't make sense to keep on doing the magazine the way I've been doing it, you know, because I lose money every time an issue comes out. So now I'm going to yeah, you know, do advertising or anything like that. I, you know, my whole the thrust of what I do is just get the information out there. It's not I, I don't make a living off of uh, that. <laughs> just a, I guess it's obsessive compulsive behavior. <laughs> so let me ask but you a question. Trying to figure yeah. out how to do it for less and less money is, is the key. The name of the game. What's that? The, you know, staying alive is always the the name of the game on this planet. It appears. And um, yeah. well, you know, just getting back to the current interesting conspiracy world, what do you think is, let's say, of the last three or four years, the most underreported conspiracy or cons conspirational trend that you've seen? Wow. Okay, that's a good question. Underreported, you know, because yeah. I I daily monitor uh, maybe two dozen conspiracy discussion list mm -hmm. and I've done that for years and years and years so it's hard for me to think in terms of underreporting because I see so much of, of all of it well in uh, terms of the mass media I mean we know well, that the there's mass a media lot doesn't report on anything they under everything is underreported you know if it doesn't involve it's kind of interesting about the mass media I don't know if you've ever noticed that the CNN is like really critical of George Bush and the administration and the war you know Fox of course is rah-rah you know and and neither of them dealing of course with any factual issues just you right. know they're just go you know, media talk. So the media doesn't cover anything. That's why I always, you know, try to keep my finger on the pulse of the people who are talking about conspiracies on, on the discussion list. So, uh, you know, in one sense, all of that has been dominated by the truthers. Like I said before, I think there are things like trying to find the identity of the guy who flew the plane into the Pentagon couldn't possibly have been Han, Han Jour, who they say it is, you know. That's an underreported issue because the reported issue is that there was no plane that crashed into the Pentagon, and let's just put all of our attention on that. So that's that would be one thing. You know, How about in the paranormal that? realm, Ken? I mean, when we talk about paranormal stuff, for example, we saw the O'Hare incident of last November yeah. had a spike early in the year. Then it sort of died down. Then about, a, a, what, three, four weeks ago, NARCAP issued their report, their, their rather exhaustive report about the O'Hare episode, determining that something odd was above O'Hare that, that day in November of last year. Yeah, I mean, why is have a conventional explanation for that, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, yeah. so why is it that in the media we don't see like a, I mean, here you've got a 155-page report that determines that, okay, we don't know what the thing was, but something anomalous was definitely over the airport. You don't see that kind of follow-up in the media because I guess they can't put on the little green man tag at the end of it. I mean, well, what's that's up right. with that? Well, you have to take it seriously, and that's a, one topic that they're not going to take seriously. I think that that's because since they are, the media is in service of our military, you know, they're just basically ripping and reading press releases from the Pentagon most of the time. They have to, you know, do the typical shroud the whole issue and giggles and laughs because you really can't have the entire American populace seriously thinking about what really is going on in terms of advanced technology and weaponry in this country. Well, where is that advanced technology in terms of deployment? I mean, if we had advanced technology, wouldn't wouldn't we be able to control our military uh, efforts in a 
bit more of a productive way? Or, I mean, is that, uh, you know, that's uh, the part of that disconnect. And we talk about advanced technologies that are, well, that well, are, it's a money, it's a, there's a money game going on here, you know. I mean, they can't, you don't think we could blow Iraq out of the water tomorrow? We could have done it with Vietnam. But if you do that, then who buys the Bell helicopters the next month? So there is an invested interest in stretching out the warfare culture because that's where they make their money. Most of the oil that's consumed in this country is consumed by the military aircraft and the tanks and the planes and so forth that are fighting the war to get the oil in the first place, you know? Mm. So, yeah, you know, it's... Um, Those Humvees no get, what, seven miles a gallon? <laughs> yeah, well, right. The armored but, ones, I think, get seven miles a gallon. Well, here's here's a question for you, uh, for our listeners. When you go out into the web and you seek sources of interest, Interesting conspiracy information and news. What are the three top websites that are your sources? Uh, well, uh, see, all I can tell you is uh, these lists. I can name a few of them. There's a CTRL. Is actually one of the oldest ones that goes back to the Usenet days, and that has a lot of good uh, information on it. Websites that I actually surf. Uh, if you want to discuss, for instance, religious history and the conspiracies and the parapolitics of religion, I'm always uh, going to Acharya S's list. Have you, uh, do you know her, Acharya? Yeah, S? we've had her on the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's a really great. So I mean, she's brilliant. You know, she's got the detail. You know, that's one that I go to. But mostly it's just the list, and I get really most of my information talking to people on the phone, you know, <laughs> and reading books. You know, I work at a library, right? You know, my day job is I'm an archivist. And so 40 hours a week doing historical research. Uh, uh, so, I think we knew that about you. Yeah. Uh. Archivist by day, conspiracy theorist by night. It's kind of basically the same job that you're trying yeah, to looking at history and trying to come up with some answers about it. Uh, so, you know, I recommend steamshovelpress.com, of course. We always have a link uh, to that at the site. You know, I was yeah. thinking here, David and I were discussing before you came on about the fact that really we hardly know what happened last night because we have, of course, the various bias situations of the news. For example, as you say, CNN would tend to be negative about Bush. Fox News no. tend to be more positive about Bush. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, okay. And the issue being... Where do you find the truth? You've got 10 different versions of a story. We can't figure out what happened yesterday. And yet we're sitting here. We have students who are studying history in school. And they are being told this happened 200 years ago. Oh, yeah? We don't know what happened last week. How do we know what happened 200 years ago? How do we know that historians just argued over it and they reached a consensus that may have nothing to do with it? Let's go back a couple of thousand years ago when certain biblical events occurred, okay? Yeah, well... Uh, and that even gets worse. How do we know what happened 2,000, 3,000 years ago? Did you see the footage of the, the, the teenage beauty queen from South Carolina? Are you up on that story? Oh, yeah. The question was uh, something like 5% like of the people in this country can't locate the United States on a map. And she started off with, you know, well, that's because a lot of them don't own maps. And then she just degenerated into the most confused. Oh, it was a car crash. I was going to say something, but I, I don't think it's really worth it. I think to me, it goes. She's yeah. supposed to be cute, but if you think about it. <laughs> Bush became president, and Bush has said stupider things than she has said. This girl's expectation about public discourse from birth, from the time she was 12, uh, when George Bush became president, uh, is 
is, is reflected in what she said. I mean, Bush, George Bush himself has said stupider things. He's a stupid man, a crude man. Ever since he's been on the public scene, people are dumber. And it just doesn't seem weird to that kid that she's so dumb. SAT scores are going down, I hear. Are they? Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well... I think you're giving Bush a little too much credit here, quite frankly. I mean, I, I think that, <laughs> you know, intelligence levels have been decreasing for quite a while. I don't know that I would uh, that I would attribute that to George W. Bush. I, I don't think he's he's had that much of an influence. I think he's re more reflective of the environment. I don't know that he's the source of it. You know, I, I think it's important to realize you know, that you, because you don't you don't see a qualitative difference in the kind of public discourse we have now, ever since he's been president and a major national figure who fumbles. And I mean, even Reagan, for instance, was an actor. He was smooth, you know, but I certainly see, you know, it's not just an ideological thing. There are conservatives uh, who are elegant, who can speak, you know, who can make their points without being just a fumbling boob, which is always what George Bush has been. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not giving him all the blame, I suppose, but what we're talking about here is an instance of public discourse, an instance where you're going to stand up and say something, and she wasn't even conjugating her verbs. Well, no, but but again, she I think that, that was okay. And, and the other thing is, afterwards, she she didn't apologize for it. I think she explained to somebody on the Today Show that you know I just want people to know that I'm just a teenage girl and just really good and didn't not even embarrassed yet about it, even yeah. though she's been the laughing stock for days. Uh, Bush, Bush is not embarrassed about who he is. You know, he his his public style hasn't changed. You know, well, he thinks he's good. <laughs> Well, he thinks he doesn't uh, realize that Dick Cheney is writing his speeches or something like that. <laughs> I think he's well, running out of people to write his speeches because everybody is resigning. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not quite true. That's not quite true. But he just thinks that uh, you know he's, he doesn't. It's okay to be stupid. You know, he's just a good old boy. You know, he's, as long as he's got the American values, he doesn't really have to think about anything too much. Okay, David, we're about out of time, and I think maybe you have time for a final question or two before we go off into the paranormal sunset. <laughs> the para did, I, did I plug Steam Shovel enough on this show? i got to get that out there as often as possible. The new issue yeah. of Steam Shovel Press. Yeah, no, I, I think um, you did. Yeah. Let me mention one other thing about it, because I know there's still a lot of fans of Jim Keith. Now, I know you haven't had Jim Keith on your show, because he's been dead for eight years. But he's the awesome That doesn't Keith, stop right? us. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote Sauces of the Illuminati, uh, and that was uh, an excerpt from that was posted on a number of different conspiracy sites this week. It's it weird. And somebody posted Jim Keith's Wikipedia entry. Uh, we co-wrote the Octopus together. Anyway, he still got a lots and lots of fans. I found some uh, something he wrote called Notes on Conspiracy Theories and some correspondence he had with some some kid years ago. So there's new Jim Keith writing in this new issue. Uh, you know, for people who. Uh, who are into that. And again, we've got the Robert Anton Wilson uh, uh, tribute going on there and a uh, bunch of other things. And one unfortunate thing is that it's not all up at the website yet. If you go to steamshowpress.com, you still get all the stuff from the old issue because there's uh, some kind of timing problem here. We haven't put anything up. But if you write to editor at steamshovelpress.com, I will send you a PDF flyer that, uh, that will describe the new issue and then talk about all these other PDF products that... Uh, that's finally we're getting out there. Well, we have to kind of get out there ourselves in a moment here, Ken Thomas. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you a final question, all right? And we can okay. flow with this. What do you think is 
very briefly, and this could be maybe a cliffhanger for the next time you come on the show. What do you think is the strangest, most unusual conspiracy out there that maybe has a chance of being true? Uh, <laughs> God, you, uh, that, that is a nice one to save for the next time. I was uh, uh, recently challenged on talking about Wilhelm Reich and Oregon theory. And it reminded me of a time that I went to the north of London and verified something called the temperature differential, which is the, the big controversy involving Reich. It defies the law of entropy. And it reminded me also that I one time saw a metallic saucer UFO at Area 51. Also that I have an implant in my knee and I've uh, petitioned to get the medical record and that medical record doesn't make any sense. And that there's all these kind of, you know, experiential things that, that I've done that personally happened to me that, you know, when you talk about the obsessed paranoid, that I've never really obsessed over enough. <laughs> but uh, but somebody, in response to that, somebody said, well, I'm no fan of Wilhelm Reich. And I said, well, that's like saying you're no fan of Thomas Paine. And if people who knew Thomas Paine were his fans and paid attention to him, we wouldn't have had the Civil War. And mm -hmm. if people would have paid attention to Reich and people like him, we wouldn't have the ecological disaster that we have now. And I think I think that might be... A place to look if you're looking for the you know most potentially seriously dangerous area mm. of conspiracy going on. Thank you so much, Ken Thomas of Steam Shovel Press. Thanks for joining us on the Power. Good to talk to you guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it, man. See ya. Bye. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to. You. News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Jim Mosley, editor, publisher of Saucer Smear, has been watching and sometimes participating in the UFO field for, what, 55 years, 60 years now. And so he has some unique observations, not so much about the phenomena itself, but about the culture of ufology, because he's met a lot of interesting people. And the first question I want to ask you, Jim, the dichotomy or the, the split between various factions in the UFO field, is this like Democrats and Republicans or something a lot more involved? Well, in the simplest form, it's uh, conservatives, I suppose, uh, versus liberals. Uh, the conservatives are, or at least until recently, were mainly looking for uh, what they called uh, nuts and bolts uh, saucers, uh, 3D things that uh, in most cases were believed to come from another planet, whereas uh, the uh, other wing, which was in the old days the contactees and now the uh, abductees, well, they went further than that. I suppose they also believed in 3D saucers, but also in some kind of 4D saucers and uh, that these space creatures interact with us, uh, abduct people and do other strange things. Uh, so you have, although the split isn't perfectly uh, aligned, uh, but you have basically those two types, the conservatives and the uh, wilder people. Now, that's not really reflective, though, of the wide range of people who are interested in this. It seems like 
There are many more variations, gradations of subtlety. As oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, an outline of it, yeah. Right. I mean, everything it looks like today, and certainly in the media circus, is discussed in terms of polarized stances, but I think as we delve deeper into the topic of UFOs, more reasonable and thoughtful people might say that there is a wide range of middle ground where there might be some real fruit to bear. Well, what I find interesting, since I believe in UFOs, but I believe that they probably don't come from another planet for various reasons at, at this point. And I find more and more of the so-called intellectuals in the UFO field who also believe that there is something going on. But more and more, I say, I think more in England than here, but uh, both places, uh, the uh, believers who have given this uh, sufficient thought think that we're dealing with a mystery much more complicated than just objects and creatures coming in from another planet. And I'm, I'm very glad to see that because that's a conclusion that I reached uh, some time back. How did you reach that conclusion, Jim? What, what brought you to that well, position? Well, you know, it's so simplistic to say uh, here we are at this stage of civilization and we're starting to get out into space to some degree and certainly if all goes well in the next few years we'll be getting further out into space and eventually uh, landing on Mars and other such things and uh, so uh, when you talk to the average Joe about saucers and he's trying to be agreeable with you he says well sure gee whiz uh, we're about to go out into space so what's so strange that uh, creatures from elsewhere would be coming here and, and that is simplistic but it is theoretically uh, a good thought and it might be true but uh, there are many other possibilities and just because we're at that stage does not automatically mean that someone else is at that stage just slightly more advanced than us which is always interesting and no matter what stage we're at they're just a little bit further along but not far enough along that we don't recognize them as life but just sort of like us even looking a lot like us but uh, a little bit more advanced I mean that's a nice thought and it could be true but it's not the only answer and when people get deeper into it uh, they might find a, a more complex answer. Well, just that statement, the fact that the UFO phenomena appears to be just one step ahead of us, wherever we are, they're ahead of us. Now, yeah. is that our perception of what they are or something they're doing to play with us? Well, uh, there's no way of knowing. Uh, but uh, it's interesting, uh, for instance, in the uh, 1987 flap, you want to call it that, in which uh, I, I believe it started from the west coast and gradually worked its way east over a period of months, and uh, there, were, there were no uh, winged aircraft involved. These were dirigible type things, which was something that we could understand at that time. And uh, so I think it's a perfect example of how the saucers have uh, improved their technology as we have improved ours. And uh, I think there must be some meaning to that. And just what that meaning is, I don't know. Well, is that necessarily the meaning, Jim? Or could we enter that strange twilight zone space and speculate that the phenomenon is potentially shaped by human perception and that it is a reaction to our expectations in terms of the, the the actual physical formation and physical appearance of the object 
seems to conform to certain standards of the time. Um, yeah, well, that's uh, that's very possible uh, that we shape it uh, to something that we can understand, uh, but that st still doesn't explain what's going on, really. It, it's mm -hmm. just one aspect of it. Right. It might just be, Jim, and you can certainly weigh in on this, it might be that we are somehow influencing what we see, even if there is an external phenomenon. Right. Our, our own perceptions are apparently impacting that. But that gets back to the people who get involved in this thing. Do you think the UFO field attracts certain people because of its nature or because of what they or this phenomenon is doing or do you think it's just a random sampling of people who get involved in unusual subjects well uh, there's different aspects of that uh, in the old days I don't know if it's as much true now but uh, a lot of people especially younger uh, people kids and such were excited about science fiction and uh, all of the weird possibilities that there are there certainly when you're doing fiction there's no limit to uh, uh, the possibilities when you're doing uh, something based on a reality or some uh, perception of reality then uh, there's uh, limits to uh, what you can see but I think a lot of uh, kids particularly uh, possibly including yourself Gene uh, uh, switched uh, from science fiction to alleged science fact because it was more exciting and uh, uh, because uh, it's interesting to deal with, uh, with what's supposed to be reality rather than something that is admitted to be fiction. Actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I kind of maintain an interest in parallel with UFOs and science fiction. I think a lot of people do, but as you and I both know, any attempt to merge interests of science fiction and UFOs is quite often doomed to failure. Well, yeah, now that's the other aspect of the same thing. The real serious hardcore science fiction people, not to mention, I believe, all or almost all of the science fiction writers have no interest in saucers and they're repelled by the whole idea because I would think that the science being talked about in, in regard to saucers is not as uh, complete uh, or complex as the science uh, in, in science fiction. In other words, most science fiction people are steeped in real science. And uh, needless to say, uh, sadly indeed, uh, most UFO uh, believers, uh, the hardcore at least, know little or nothing about science, and that would even include me. I've never studied science at all, and uh, I have no knowledge of the details, but uh, saucers interest me and excite me. It's a lot easier to uh, get into the saucer field than to get a degree in, in uh, physics or something, I would imagine. Here's a, an important question about that. Is that just because current UFO belief systems are just another spin on mythological belief systems? Is this becoming a replacement for religion for some number of people? Well, a religion comes in it, into it also, as you know. People who have given up organized religion but still have what I would call the sweetness and light attitude. Uh, uh, also, people that see that the world is in a terrible shape and that we need help from something. Right. Uh, these people are certainly going to be attracted to a field in which uh, you have mystery and also 
on the brighter side of it, if you take that side, you have creatures that are here to help us and to uh, lead us forward and keep us uh, from uh, falling into pitfalls of world destruction and all that. And uh, that's a very uh, pleasant uh, belief system if that's what you are able to to achieve. Mm -hmm. So whether yeah. or not the Savior is a Jewish carpenter nailed up on a piece of wood <laughs> or a little green guy who is bringing the answers or any number of manifestations of Savior, essentially, uh, basically most people, most defined as 51% or more, are children looking for mommy or daddy to save them. It's basically what we're talking about here. I uh, have never heard it uh, phrased quite that uh uh, way, uh, Gene. Uh, of course, Jewish that was carpet. David's. That was David. Uh, oh, that carpenter. was Gene. That, that was David. That was David. Gene, you Jew-hating Jew. You self-hating <laughs> Jew. How dare you say such things? I, I am offended. I mean, I resemble these remarks. What? Sorry. Well, all right. If you two guys can uh, get your Jewishness uh, under control, no, uh, no we, we okay. can go on here. Well, actually, last week we had... <laughs> Jeff Ritzman and Alan Greenfield with us, so we had an overwhelming Jewish aspect to the show. Jeff Ritzman is not Jewish. What are you yakking He's about? Not He's not Jewish. Jewish. No way. Gene, this is something I intended to ask you off the air, but it, it comes to me now. I know you people have had trouble with Cal K. Korf. Oh, Cal, oh, and and, oh, and one of you, one of you <laughs> believes that Cal K. Korf is anti-Semitic. However, the more I read on the net... Uh, about and from Cal K. Korf, he claims to be Jewish. Now, does he claim that or not, and is he? Well, in an earlier interview that was done with him that our buddy Royce Myers the third had dug up on the San Jose Mercury website, Cal claimed to be a fundamentalist Christian. So it's kind of interesting how he's sort of morphed, apparently, over the years into Judaism. But, but guys... I have to point out that apparently Cal is back on his med medications. He's he's really toned down the the hate speech and rhetoric on his site. So apparently somebody turned his Wellbutrin or Prozac prescription back on. So I don't know if actually it's really... Zyprexia, well, which is a schizophrenic. Well, one the one aspect of his being Jewish is that this secret organization that he claims to be a member of, S3, is an Israeli organization, and I would assume uh, that he wouldn't be welcome into an Israeli uh, pseudo paramilitary organization if he wasn't Jewish himself. So that's what makes me think. Think that his claim is that now I, I met him years ago when he bungled uh, one of our annual national UFO conferences. Uh, he bungled it worse than anyone has ever bungled it. Oh, do tell. I'll tell you what. Huh? Let me let's have the cliffhanger, ladies and gentlemen. In just a moment, Jim Mosley will tell everyone in the entire <laughs> world listening to the Paracast just how Cal K. Corf, KKK, bungled the national UFO conference, which is pretty hard to do. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 
250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we have Jim Mosley, editor-publisher of Saucer Smear, which I don't think we'd call it the National Enquirer of the UFO field, maybe the page six of the UFO field. Jim? Call it the weekly world news of the saucer field, since the weekly world news oh. is, it has just gone defunct after a yeah. great number of years, yes. You know, some of the best examples of bad Photoshop work have now gone to sleep. I, I love that newspaper. That was a great newspaper, which apparently most people don't believe that, indeed, it was created because Generoso Pope, the publisher, when he took the National Enquirer to color, had to find some use for those big, shiny black and white printers they had been doing the Enquirer with. So that's how the World Weekly News was born. And many of us are going to miss Bat Boy. It's not fair that he's going away. That's all I want to say. Right. Okay, now back to back to Cal K Corp bungling this convention. What happened, Jim? Yeah, I thought I may have told you this on a previous show, but I, I think it was 1989, and Corp was a, a co-worker, or thought he was, of uh, Bill Moore, who at that time was on the cutting edge of, of ufology because he was the one who... Uh, you might say discovered the original group of MJ-12 documents, and uh, and right. Moore was riding high and getting a lot of attention from that. And incidentally, uh, the first batch of uh, MJ-12 documents was released to the public at a different national UFO conference uh, in in uh, the year uh, 1987, I believe, and that's the one that was held in uh, Burbank. Mm -hmm. So we too were on the cutting edge of this great discovery of uh, of uh, documents which now appear almost certainly to be bogus. But the point is, Corf was buttering up Bill Moore uh, because uh, Moore was a very important saucer at that time. Now, when I asked Corf to take the National UFO Conference in 1989. He, I believe, warned me ahead of time that the only people he wanted to have speaking were himself and more. 
And as it turned out, uh, I believe I might have introduced him, but even I was not allowed to speak, although I was the permanent chairman of the National UFO Conference. The only two people invited to speak were, were the two that I have just mentioned. But, Jim, one question here, and that is yes. you were the permanent chairman. So why yes. couldn't you just overrule him? Well, uh, each year I found someone who was willing to take on this task. And uh, within reason, I always went along with the preferences of the local chairman because he was the one taking the financial risk, going to all the trouble of uh, setting everything up. And uh, so I felt that it was best to let them do it the way they wanted to, although I don't remember anyone else being that peculiar about it, uh, having only two speakers. But that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was he was in a small town called Fremont, California, where he lived. And all he did was hire a high school auditorium for the afternoon, and I'm sure that he got it for free. Hmm. And apparently he sent out no publicity whatsoever. I don't know of any. I don't remember if he ever claimed that he did, but uh, I do know that at this uh, convention, in quotes, uh, the only people there were uh, those two speakers and myself and two or three people uh, from uh, the high school, perhaps the yeah. lighting man or or the uh, fellow that sweeps the floors. And uh, so that would be a total of about six people is all that we had for this giant national UFO conference. And uh, that was insane, but that's the way uh, Corf did it. Another thing that we always have with the uh, UFOC is some kind of a social event of an evening. And uh, the social event it turned out to be at Corf's apartment, and he invited his girlfriend and another couple of couples that he knew, and Brad Sparks, who he knew. Uh, but didn't choose to have speech at the convention. So we had one other saucerer beside himself and me. I don't think Moore was there either. And uh, just non-saucer people, just a, a quaint little uh, ordinary get-together of a bunch of friends, but nothing on the scale of a uh, saucer convention, social, so to speak. And that's uh, that's what he did. There was nothing to do about it uh, when it was over because uh, it just turned out the way that it turned out. And uh, if you ask Corf now, as I tried once a while back, he, he denies all that. He says, I'm making it up. It wasn't like that at all. But that is my recollection very definitely. Well, actually, Jim, I, I heard a rumor about that little get-together at, at his apartment afterwards that you guys were um, served a thing called the Corf Torpedo, I guess. He would take Twinkies and use an, a, a hypodermic needle to extract the, taint, the Twinkie kind of cream, inject grain alcohol, and then freeze the whole thing so that you would then eat these things as part of a ritual that he did. I, I read about, he posted Where on, on earth website. did you hear that? On, on his website, he posted that he, he, had, he had patented this technique, a very special technique to remove the Twinkie cream from the Twinkie without any sort of structural deformation. You're, you're lapsing into your German accent. I, 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 I'm not lapsing into anything. I'm telling you, this is technologically okay. very sophisticated. Okay. <laughs> and he removes the cream and he puts in the grain alcohol, only the grain alcohol. No vodka, no gin. It has to be pure like his soul. And then he throws the whole thing when he takes us out and he serves him on little, little French napkins. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, 
yes, you're having fun with that. Well, actually, Sorry. in my whole life, that's the first time I've heard of that. And uh, it Me seems too. like something I would remember. If well, that's the first like... time he heard of it, too. <laughs> I can't well. imagine anything like that going on. I, I believe we may have had a few drinks like at any yeah. party, but there was nothing weird going on at all. In I, fact, I there was so. nothing unweird going on. It was just a very dull little get-together. It would have been nice if something weird happened, but you see, that gets to the whole thing that he lives in this world that doesn't Right. That's the point I'm making. Right. Sure. It, he, he's living in a complete delusional fantasy, and, and reading the stuff on his website has reinforced that, especially uh, Jim, because we post it on our website. As you guys know, I'm not on the net, and I never will be, but uh, thanks to a fine gentleman who I've never met named uh, Vince Dishkus, who lives in Alexandria, he uh, sends me a great amount of stuff from the net. I'd say 200 or more items a uh, month, and some of them are just a page or two, some of them are uh, 20, 30, 40 pages or uh, more. So I don't see everything, but I have seen a lot of the stuff that Corf has uh, posted and some of the people objecting to uh, what he posts and so forth. No, I haven't seen anything like that at all. Well, see, the problem is that the Billy Meyer people are now using his mental breakdown as fuel to say, see, anything that he ever wrote about us that was in any way negative is all invalid because, hey, he's a nutcase. So any useful work he might have done and on debunking the Billy Meyer nonsense has now been thrown out. Now, that's just unfortunate. Yes, it is. I, yeah. I never read his book on uh, Billy Meyer, but I know it was, uh, I believe it was published by uh, Prometheus, which is a decent uh, skeptical publisher. And they also I have think a great he... science fiction title now. They have a science fiction affiliate title where they put out some pretty good books every month or two. I get a, I'm on their review list, and well, it is a quality house. They used to have Isaac Asimov, and uh, people, uh, I believe, uh, they did some of uh, Carl Sagan's stuff. Uh, they have had real writers and real scientists among their authors. And incidentally, they also had at uh, the other end of the spectrum. They Way had, on uh, the other end of the spectrum. Jim, as far Jim as Mosley, as if I may say this, uh, okay, sure. publishing in, in 2000. 2002, uh, my book. So uh, your book, by the way, it's called Shockingly Close to the Truth. Do you have any copies left at all, or do you, should I send people to Amazon? Well, as a matter of fact, I have a few, and I I do believe that Prometheus has a warehouse full of those. Uh, if you need uh, a few, I'm sure they're available somewhere. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we have our listeners write <laughs> to you directly? Number one, of course, about getting copies of Saucer Smear. Number two, shockingly close to the truth, which is one of my favorite UFO books. And the subtitle is Confessions of a Grave Robbing Ufologist. Mm. That's the uh, second line of the title. Okay, what's the address, Jim? My address? Yes. Oh, God. This is I your thought chance, you never, man. I thought you would never ask. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I hope I uh, don't get swamped with mail as I did last time I was on your show, but it's P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. Okay. All right. And you'll have a few more opportunities if you're a nice boy. Ooh. Well, I can hardly wait. Now, I hear that Prometheus is also publishing O.J. Simpson's new cookbook called I Did It, I Like It, Eat Some. Did you guys know about that? It's this new book that O.J. Simpson has, has written, a cookbook. 
Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to my <laughs> dear friend Jim Mosley, editor and publisher of Saucer Smear, and also author of the great UFO book called Shockingly Close to the Truth. David. What? What did I do now? I just was mentioning something about Prometheus. I was speaking to the editor-in-chief over there, Stephen Mitchell, who told me that they're putting out this new O.J. Simpson cookbook. And that's well, why was he being out. funny, uh, I would think? No, yeah. no, 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 no. That man, I've spoken to him twice on the phone. The last thing on earth he ever is going to be is funny. He's about as funny as a bloody carbuncle. No, he is not funny. He is but, nasty. Uh, obviously, yeah. O.J. Simpson's book is not a cookbook, as we know. Uh, apparently, it's about, you know, making things hot. I don't know. It's about as accurate as what Cal Korf says about his 2,000 book deal. There you go. 500 book deal. 500 book deal. 500 okay. book deal. I'm losing track because the numbers yeah, keep changing. Too. Meanwhile, is it, Jim, that essentially the ratio of crazy people to quote-unquote sane people in this field has always been completely out of balance, and that's just what we should expect with the territory? Well, what do you mean out of balance? Well, I mean, you know, about 99% lunatics and 1%... Oh, I shouldn't think it's... Uh, no, I think that's unduly harsh. And uh, okay. Secondly, uh, I just always wonder, in saucers or any other field of uh, endeavor or interest... Where do you draw the line between the right. sane people and the insane people? That exactly. is extremely hard to do, and uh, I would say it's impossible to do. Uh, all of us are a little bit crazy, even you, Gene. I don't know about David, but uh, I could suspect... <laughs> <laughs> I would suspect that anyone working with Gene Steinberg must have problems that are uh, not just the everyday sort of problems. You but I work together. I don't have problems. I only have solutions. I want to talk over Gene because he does it all the time. That's right. I don't have any problems at all. Gene, do you have any problems? Uh, no, I only have solutions. Oh. Yes, yes. So uh, really, though, you can't uh, do it that way. If people were not imaginative and thinking of new theories and new approaches to the subject, why it would be completely stagnant, uh, which it pretty much is anyhow. So right. you've got to have people with a, a good imagination and people who think outside the box, so to speak, and that opens the door to craziness, I suppose. But, you know, it's a question of de degree, not of kind. Then you have other people who are just off the wall. 
altogether, and some of those are abductees and some are not. I only really know one or two abductees reasonably well, and uh, well, I'd say two. Of the two, one seems quite normal on any other subject, and the other seems a little strange on, on any subject. I, I don't know. You can't do uh, statistics on the basis of two people, but I would imagine, again, with the uh, with the abductees, uh, there's a range uh, all the way from uh, extreme this and extreme that. I mean, you know, you can't characterize people easily. That's all I'm saying. No, no, absolutely not. But what you just said is very telling, Jim, that there's this range from people who you know are pretty extreme in their descriptions of these things to people who maybe experience these experience these things as a one-time shot is that the people or is that the nature of the experience itself I don't know. Well, uh, when I'm thinking of the one abductee that I know fairly well who does appear to be sane, and you know, this name I'm sure will uh, be familiar to you, it's uh, David Huggins from um, New Jersey. Oh, what is the name of that little town? But anyway, uh, he's been having a lifetime of abductions going back to childhood and uh, all of them are rather strange mostly they're sexually oriented but at the same time uh, he doesn't seem any stranger on other subjects than, than anybody else does he has a normal job and he uh, seems to live a pretty normal life and uh, do you know the man I'm talking about he's an artist he paints all these things. Yeah, actually, I've heard of him. Absolutely, David Huggins. He he mm -hmm. was involved in this convention that they had about six or eight weeks ago in New York City, and he showed his art and so forth. Bud Hopkins was involved with that, and Mike Luckman and some of the other people in New York. Yeah, City. that was the the culture of contact. Yeah, we. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I actually went down to it. Yeah, absolutely. I was there. You you were there in New York. Uh, I live in New York. Yes, David David speaking. Yes, I live in New York and. I took my lovely girlfriend down there, and we went down there. And uh, I think I actually met Mr. Huggins, actually. Yeah, but if, if, I think it's it's who I'm thinking about. And he had a lot of this uh, very strange artwork hanging up on the walls. Yeah. Now, David, then you don't live out where Gene is. You live in New York. I don't want to live in a desert, Jim. Who the heck wants to live in a desert? Well, I don't know. A lot of people... <laughs> no. I like Phoenix. Well, I did before it got so big. Uh, I don't like it as much anymore. But any, anyway, so you, you met Huggins and you saw his art. Yeah, I saw his, his art. His main problem is, and I've never quite told him this, uh, but his art, his skill as an artist, apart from the subject matter, is not extremely good. And if he were not painting unusual scenes of space women and himself doing strange and unusual things, as only space people and Earth people can do together, yeah. if it wasn't for that kind of thing, I don't think his art would be noticed very much. But because his subject matter is so unusual, he, he does get a lot of attention. But interestingly, he, he doesn't sell much of his art because he really doesn't want to. He just likes to display it. As someone who immediately hits museums when I go to a city uh, and goes and stares at whatever um, really spectacular pieces they have up, no, I, I wouldn't call him a an extremely talented artist. He, he's he's fairly middling, as we say. He has the same uh, problem that my daughter has, who is even less of an artist, and that is uh, the struggle 
to get it to look like what it's supposed to look like. If that's a struggle, then you're not at the top rank because a really great artist can can do shades and nuances and things that are beyond just making it look like it's supposed to so that you can recognize it. They can go much further than that and do it easily, and that's the mark of a good artist, I think. You know what happens to artists who get really frustrated and can't convey the image in their minds with technique onto a, a physical medium? They become photographers. <laughs> <laughs> well, very possibly they do, yeah. <laughs> David's stuff is, it, it's pretty uh, predictable, and uh, it's not, it, to me, it's some, probably probably the result of some interesting, weird sexual repression he's having, as I think a lot of these contact cases are, not all of them, mind you. Now, interestingly, uh, most of, of David's art are these nighttime scenes of various entities, but he's also had other experiences outdoors uh, when he was younger and not all of them had anything to do with sex so I mean uh, he is more versatile than people might think well, however what's happened to him in, in recent years I believe is all this uh, middle of the night stuff which might uh, even correspond to wet dreams or something I don't know it's at a point Jim you know, we start to look at these abduction cases you see certain recurring themes that start to hint at more of a human explanation than an extraterrestrial or paranormal explanation. I'm not trying to say all of them fit that case, but probably fair to say a, a large number of them do. And, and I think that part of the problem is that when the researchers approach this, they bring their own expectations and prejudices to the table. And it's kind of like the issue of regression hypnosis, where our friend of the show, Jeff Ritzman, for those of you doing drinking games, take a drink. Jeff has a real problem with regression hypnosis, and I probably have to agree with him, given um, the, the prejudice that people throw into this situation and, and the fact that it is very hard to treat this highly subjective ex set of experiences in an, in an objective way. And, and I've actually caught some heat on the forums recently for suggesting that maybe this entire phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon and, uh, and the encounter phenomenon, is such that we don't have instrumentation or methodologies to understand this. Or maybe we, we are just on the brink of having these things, but we don't have them now. And so to try to deal with these topics in a reasonable way, you, there's no rational basis, so it's really hard to even try to come up with theories or explanations when people want hard science to back this stuff up. And I just don't know that, as I said, currently that's even possible. Well, yeah, I think you're probably right. I, I think it will be a long time before science catches up uh, with this. I mean, I can understand why serious scientists are turned off by the UFO field. Sure. The more I read this Internet stuff, it's just mostly uh, garbage. And uh, the field keeps, uh, how can I put it, the people in the field in general, the kind of uh, things they believe and the way they go about doing things is such that only the most patient scientists will look for the kernel of truth behind all this because on the surface it just looks like a bunch of nuts uh, and that there is nothing whatever going on and that's unfortunate. I think it's dreadful but uh, there's not much you can do about it. Once in a while uh, you get somebody like Dr. J. Allen Hynek who is my ideal, you might say, uh, one of the few people in the field that I really admire and as you know and as 
I guess most of your listeners know he started out as a Air Force spokesman for about 20 years and then reached the point uh, where in his own intellectual belief he evolved into realizing that not all of these things can be explained as uh, marsh gas or stars or airplanes or whatever else and that there is a hardcore of uh, things that are very difficult to explain if if not impossible. Well, you know, but, something I want to say this about Heineck. I don't know if you ever met him or talked to him at length. I met him several times and talked to him, yes. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you perceptions in a moment, but I know a couple of times that I interviewed him and talked to him, I saw him leaning, maybe reluctantly, towards what we call the 4D explanation. Oh, absolutely. That's just the point I was going to make next. His first change was from skepticism to belief. And then he, being, a, in my mind, a very fine intellectual, went, I don't know what the time frame was, but he went zooming past the interplanetary theory, and this ties right in with what I was saying earlier. He could see that that didn't seem to be it. It was more complex than that, and it was something extremely peculiar. And he absolutely did uh, lean toward 4D, and he would say that to people in private, uh, including to me uh, at least one time and then eventually he went uh, public with it and then uh, I believe succeeded in uh, annoying people like Jerry Clark who worked with him but stubbornly to this day stays 3D Well you know and something I about Jerry Clark now that you raised the Jerry Clark label I knew Jerry Clark in the early years and you must remember this Jim that happened in the late 60s where he was undergoing not just a 3D UFO experience but a 4D kind of experience. Oh, I know, I know. As far as I can piece it together, let's let's say it. He was in college for six or seven years and never got a, a degree, which I find hilarious, hmm. since I don't get along too well with Jerry Clark. He never got a, a degree, and uh, when asked, all he'll ever say is, I got caught up in the madness of the 60s, which makes me believe that he got off deeply into psychedelics or something. And, and hmm. during that period, yes, he had much stranger beliefs than he has now, and had no doubt had some strange experiences of his own. And then later, when he uh, calmed down or got off of all that or whatever changed, he now uh, has uh, fixated himself, you might say, in a 3D mode, which he will not budge from, and, uh, and that's the way he's been for quite a number of years. But yes, indeed, he had a uh, more liberal period, and possibly you know more about that, Gene, than I do, because I didn't know him very well in those days. Well, I know that uh, after I told you about it, I <laughs> went on his do not contact ever again for the rest of my life list. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Jim Osley, editor-publisher of Saucer Smear, joins us. He's also author of the great book, Shockingly Close to the Truth. And for listeners who want to learn more about Jim, what's the address again? Oh, my goodness. The uh, second opportunity. Uh, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, two words, Key West, Florida, 33041. Let me ask you quickly. If they want to buy a copy of the book from you, what will you charge them? Well, for me, including postage, would be $30. But I'll tell you the truth, since it won't make much difference anyhow, they can get it cheaper on the net. And uh, I have a little ad just to spoil my own business, which is the kind of guy I am. If you turn to the bottom of page 8 of the current issue of Saucer Smear, you'll find a little thing from the net. I believe you can get the book new for as little as 16 or $17, not from me, but from uh, Amazon or God knows who, and you can get it uh, used for as little as 3 or $4. The thing that makes uh, the book uh, that you buy directly from me worth $30 is that it's autographed, you see. Okay, so it'll be autographed. I'll tell you what, Jim, how about doing this? Let's make this deal on the air for everybody to listen to. You'll also pack in a copy of the most recent issue of Saucer Smear. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Normally, no doubt about a, that. you know, kind of a unspecified non-subscription rate for that publication. But if you buy the book for thirty bucks and you get the autograph version, you from get a free copy of Smear. Absolutely. Okay, so we cut a deal. We cut. Uh, deal. That's great. But getting back to Jerry Clark, if yes, we indeed. might. Uh, oh, please. He, of course, <laughs> I find it amusing. Uh, he was at that time editor, one of the editors of uh, IUR, International UFO Reporter. I think he still is. I'm not sure. But anyway, at that time, that was 2002 when the book came out, he uh, gave it, it was either seven or eight pages in IUR. And at the, yeah, I was deeply flattered and shocked and amused all at the same time because I don't think any book has ever gotten that long a review in that publication and indeed in any other. That's awfully long for a book review and uh, but he just had to express himself fully and since he was an editor they couldn't stop him and he goes on for seven or eight pages uh, trashing the book uh-huh. to pieces I think I lost my copy in the hurricane two years ago uh, Wilma uh, I don't believe I have it anymore but uh, that was a to me absolutely fascinating uh, book review the point is that Jerry Clark has to have thought it was an extremely important book uh, to uh, waste that much time on it, and yet he trashed it <laughs> in great detail in his uh, review. So he is an unusual sort of gentleman. And now that say. we mentioned the experiences he had back in the late 60s, without detailing them, except if you read any of the books by John Keel about people undergoing various mixes or montages of UFO and paranormal phenomena, that his girlfriend at the time was involved. That's all I need to say. We now know that Jerry Clark will hate us and the show forever. Well, didn't Keel send Jerry Clark and some other 
researchers off into the woods one time, specifically without a compass, because the compass, uh, the magnetic uh, qualities of the compass would throw off the uh, the spacecraft or the space people or something. It was sort of, sort of like a sophisticated version of a snipe hunt. I don't know if this ever happened or not, but I think Keel told me about it years ago. And so he deliberately sent these idiots off into the woods with no compass and to look for some kind of a, a UFO-related thing, and uh, they had trouble getting back, partly because they had no compass. So do you know anything about that story? No, I don't. But you know what? Yeah. I'm wondering also, and maybe David wants to add to this, but do you think that maybe John Keel sometimes was doing this deliberately as some kind of evil, twisted joke? Well, that's what that would have been if it happened, yes, of course. It's not an evil, twisted joke. It's just underscoring how wacky people get when they're involved in this field. I think at some point you have to just let some steam out and you have to prank people. And I'm all for a good prank. The author, Danielle Steele, thinks I'm Satan because of a prank I once pulled on her with a couple of friends of mine. So pranks are good. Pranks are useful, especially if they make people uh, perhaps reconsider their stances on things. What is the difference? I have a question for you. What is the difference between a prank and a hoax? I don't know the answer. I'm just curious. Well, I think a prank is done out of a sense of fun. I think hoaxes are done with something slightly more destructive in mind. And I think a hoax is designed to perpetrate a falsification that's intended to be interpreted as reality. A prank is uh, is its own self-contained thing. A prank basically very often is, I'm going to say harmless, of course, it's easy if you're not the target of the prank. Yes. Uh, a prank, a, a, a usually a single person or group are the target of a prank. Hoaxes are, are bigger in scope, I think. Hoaxes are designed... Well, all right, that's, the, yeah, that's yeah. A, a pretty good answer. So I, I guess the straight letter was a hoax rather than a prank, although the spirit of doing it was uh, that of doing a prank. Right. Okay. It's a fine line. It all depends on who's the target of the prank or the hoax. I mean, it's it's always, I think that is very subjective, you know, to the prank that we pulled on Danielle Steele, she felt it was a life-altering event because she's... What was this prank? Oh, I don't even talk about it on this show. Oh, she's a best-selling author. She makes a lot of money writing softcore porn. But I won't begin to address that on this show because... Uh, it would require three or four more it, shows to... Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's uh, It was a, a political prank, as hey, many of my pranks were. We were kind of running out of time, but I wanted to bring up one more personality. Now, we remember, of course, and Alan Greenfield mentioned this on last week's show when he joined us, and that is we took that faithful trip in 1965 to the Midwest, and we saw some interesting people. People, including Ray Palmer, and oh, yes. also met Jacques Vallée. Now, in light of what he was to become, and this was a few years before he wrote Passport to Magonia, what was your perception of Vallée then, and did you meet him after that to talk Well, I don't him? remember meeting him the time that you're talking about. The only time I really remember meeting Vallée, maybe 
Actually, twice. Once was at a Star Trek convention where Valet and uh, Heineck were both speaking, and uh, I saw them at and after the uh, press conference. I, I met Heineck other times, and I'm not sure if I met Valet any other time. Well, I'll tell you what. It was in a hotel room in Chicago, Conrad Hilton Hotel. And you were there. I was there. Rick Hilberg, Alan Greenfield, Dale Reddy. Was this in 1977 at the Fate Convention in Chicago? No, no 1965. No, I, I don't remember that at all. But then I'm getting old, and... Uh... Who knows? Well, what guys. is your perception of Valet? Because a lot of people consider him to be someone to be admired as perhaps... One oh, of I think uh, very much so. But uh, not having really ever talked to him and shamefully not having read his books, although I'm vaguely familiar with him from all the talk. No, Valet is a marvelous thinker. And uh, incidentally, Paul Kimball has just started a... Uh, a new version of, of the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'll try not to get too long-winded on this, but, you know, Paul Kimball is always having different surveys uh, on, on his website, and uh, the best and the worst saucer magazine, and the best and the worst of the people in the field, and so forth. But this is, I guess, a, an attempt to uh, imitate the Baseball Hall of Fame. So each year, five and only five people will be uh, inducted into uh, this mythical Hall of Fame, and uh, the first year is this year, and the people that are uh, in it, according to the votes uh, that Kimball received on his website, I think number one was Heineck, and number two was Valet, and somewhere in the first five is uh, Stanton Friedman, and oh, um, what's his name out in California, Dr. McDonald, yeah, and, and Donald Kehoe. I think those are the first five. Uh, that are so the point is valet certainly in any listing and Heineck also are always mentioned at the very top and I think it's very proper that they should be well you know what I want to ask you amongst all these people who do you think disappointed you the most the person that maybe you thought would be this very intelligent UFO investigator very knowledgeable but you know uh, I can give you a, a very easy answer on that and the answer is John Keel I have known him. Of course, we haven't spoken in many, many years, but when I did know him and spoke with him, I think he's opinionated. He makes things up. Uh, he uh, is anything but objective. Uh, his personality leaves much to be desired, and on a personal level, he just never liked me for some reason, although in the early days, I thought I did him some favors, but I think Keel is overrated. That's that's my opinion. Hmm. Well, and he won't come on the show, so... Uh why we're not we're not going to get to ask him about his why won't he come on the show he's just seems very close to any potential of discussing this stuff anymore and that that brings up uh, an interesting question jim why are so many people who get involved in this field ultimately in the position where they no longer want anything to do with it i mean the same thing can probably be separate for valet i mean he he seems to have no well valet it isn't hushed up or anything. As I understand it, he reached a point 
as he himself has said, I think a number of times, that he reached the point where he could not learn any more uh, from the UFO field, which is a polite way of saying that there's only so much that any of these people know or all of them put together know. And well, he's maybe already there's so much abuse you could take before you say, I don't need anymore. Yeah, well, well, yeah. In other words, he, he's a very brilliant man, and he's listened to everybody, and uh, he doesn't have to go on listening because uh, apparently there's no more to learn from them. He, he's trying to learn, and there's nothing more there to learn. I, I can understand that very uh, clearly. As far as Keel is concerned, I have no idea about his current personality because we, we haven't spoken in many years, but uh, yeah. I don't know if he's fed up with the field or uh, fed up in general. I have no idea. I wanted to mention one other name, and then maybe we can move back into Keel or something else, and that is recently we had Don Ecker on the show, and of course yes. he was one of the founders of UFO Magazine with Vicki Ecker, and he was more or less out the UFO field. And I dropped a few names to him, and I mentioned your name. Yes, you told me this. Right. Now, I told you the full story. I'm not going to repeat what he said about you, but he well, does not I, like Repeat it briefly so they will both know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> David, do you want to say this? Or well, no, well he, doesn't like, he doesn't like me, but I don't remember what his exact words were. You told me, but I don't remember. It was something that he was on a desert island and you were dying. Oh, oh he wouldn't kiss on me. If, uh, yes, yes, I remember all that. Well, what can I tell you? He, he, he is an obnoxious sort of fellow, and uh, oh, uh, I'll tell you one thing that I find disappointing. Uh, I was thinking that he and uh, Vicky were the reason that uh, UFO magazine is so dreadful. In my opinion, it is horribly dreadful. I can't describe to you how awful it is. And I was thinking that after these two charming people left, it might get better. And, and folks, you know what? It's exactly the same. It's no better and no worse. It is unbelievable to me, some of their columnists, how bad they are and how incoherent they are and how you have to read it carefully if you're going to take the trouble to have the faintest idea of what they're driving at. I find it absolutely incredible. Actually, you might uh, sum this up by saying that I'm not really a fan of UFO magazine. And it sounds to me as if Bill Burns, the current publisher of UFO magazine, is not going to write to you and ask you to contribute. Well, I'll tell you, I've had some contact with his wife, and she's very pleasant. Yes, yes, uh, nice lady. lady. Yeah. And and uh, less so with uh, Bill Burns. Uh, so I, I don't know. They, uh, uh, <laughs> well, there's something else I could go into, but I won't. So go ahead. Uh, well, they're, they're basically at this point, it seems like the media conforms to the audience. And if UFO magazine is publishing stuff, some stuff that's questionable, it's almost as if the audience is requesting it. And as far as incoherent columnists, you know, I, I can't think of anybody who makes me laugh more than Alfred Lemberg, who, you know, could be the nicest guy in the world, but essentially he's so desperately in need of an editor that reading his stuff is really dreadful. It's painful. It's like reading. Is he one of their columnists? I don't even know. Oh, no, yeah, he he's the one who writes the one column in there that I'm still trying to figure out what language it's in. 
I can't. It, it, it kind of, it has English words in it, but I, I don't know that it's English. Jim, imagine a person from outer space who learns English for the first time and tries to write in that language. That's what you get. Well, I, I don't know the particular colonists you're talking about, but I think there are several colonists in there that are in that category, and I, I just can't believe that something that actually goes on the newsstands could be this bad, but uh, what can we do? Most magazines today are, are not. I mean, this is where the web has really had an impact, if nowhere else, on the magazine world in such a tremendous way, and we especially see this in things like the technology world, where uh, websites and community-driven content has really presented quite the challenge to editorial control content, and that's you know, some people say, well, that's a bad thing about the web. I, I I, think people need to create their own filters. That's really the important point. But ultimately, I'm all for freedom of expression. I'm all for the global publishing opportunities of the web. I think that those are a good thing. But, yeah, it's, it's really affected the magazine world in a very, very intense way. Well, I'm not on the web, as I say, and uh, I don't have the skill, the patience, or or anything else, but uh, the web is doing all right by me now that I get all of this stuff sent to me and I don't have to filter it out for myself. And uh, so it actually has worked out uh, very well. I have more good material, what I consider good material, for each issue of Smear than I can use in eight pages, and I, I never have to worry about getting uh, enough uh, material of the type that I like. So. Uh, that's what the web has done for me, and I don't have to take any time looking for this stuff, so it's the best of all possible worlds as far as I'm concerned. Right. Jim, my friend, we have just a couple of minutes left. Third time's that, a charm. But, uh, but this never ends. Well, so. this one's going to end. Third time's a charm, my friend. Would you please tell us again how one gets a copy of Saucer's Smear or where one sends their $30 for a copy of one of my favorite UFO books, Shockingly Close to the Truth? It's your platform. And they can also, uh, without even going for that, they can get a sample copy of uh, Saucer's Smear. And uh, that would be free as far as the sample copy is concerned. And then if they send an undetermined number of dollars, they can uh, get on the semi-permanent mailing list. And the address, again, is P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. Now, you have been doing this for over Well, I began years. in 1954 with... Right. Uh, News, yeah. And you're still here. Apparently. Well, you know, we assume you're still here. You know. Yes, I'm still publishing it as of this time, yes. Well, if you're not still here, this is the best damn ghost interview we've yes, ever done. Yes, that's right. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I'm afraid uh, it'll cost you more to bring me back from the other side than, than you're paying me today. I'll say that. Well, anything will cost more than what I'm paying you today. My friend Jim Mosley, I will say this publicly. I always enjoy talking to you. You've been my friend for over 40 years now, and I treasure that friendship, and I thank you once again for joining us on the PowerCast. All right, Gene and Dave, thank you. I'll talk to you again soon. Huh? Thanks, Jim. That was great. All right, bye-bye. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast. 